Um, thank you very much, Kate. It's a long passage, and I'm thankful that uh, Kate was able to read for today. I don't know if I would have been able to make it through uh, all those verses this morning. Um, you know, as we think about this passage, um, the one question that we ultimately come to is this question. What do you stand for? What do you stand for? Now, I believe that everybody has beliefs that they uh, hold firmly to. That um, everybody is willing to get over conflict over something that's really important to them. That when we have these firm opinions or beliefs that we're willing to handle or take over the consequences that might come from them. Everybody, even believer or unbeliever alike, have things that they stand for. Now, these things aren't just talking points. What we're really talking about here are things for people, are the things that they, what they, are things that they stand for, are also things that we or people stand on. They define who we are as people. They tell us how we live, what our core values and views are. And these are also things that we don't believe can be relative, because if we did, we would never get into a conflict about them. What are your beliefs? What are those beliefs for you? What are beliefs that you are willing to stand for, beliefs that you stand on, beliefs that you're willing to get into conflict over, beliefs that you're willing to accept consequences for? In our world today, this is a question that everyone is asking, or we're talking about. And as Christians, you might feel like I do, that we feel terribly uncomfortable in this world because our answer to these questions is terribly unpopular. Because for many people today, their primary stance is that you and I are defined by our ethnicity, our culture, our gender. But we as Christians vehemently disagree with this idea. That in fact, we are actually not defined by these things, but we are defined by our, that we stand for, that we stand on Christ. He is what defines us as people. He is what our values are based on. And he is something that we don't think is relative, that we think is the truth. Now, it's very hard to represent this truth in our world today. To even be a Christian today is to draw kind of faces that sour and people who are angry at us, even when we get to talk about some of the things that we believe. And I would imagine, like, like, my, like myself, for many of you here, you ask yourselves, how can we stand in this world today? What does this look like? <clears throat> I want to submit to you that we should look to Stephen's life and death. Because I think that as we look at this account here about Stephen, it really is an example for all of us as Christians about how we are to stand in this world. It talks about how we are to stand in this life, how we are to stand in witness, and where we stand in death. And this is the main message of today's sermon. <clears throat> now let's just talk about an introduction here. Um, so just a, maybe a brief primer of how we got here today. In, in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, we had this account of, um, uh, of widows and kind of like, how do we deal with these widows? And there seems to be like this disagreement or this issue with them. 
And so a question comes up about, you know, we want to make sure that the, the apostles want to be able to go and do the ministry of the word, and they don't want to have to give themselves over to these other ministries that are, that are important, but they want to make sure that they are devoted to this one task. So they begin to appoint men to take over this task. And this is really where we are introduced to Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen is one of seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will, who, who are appointed for this duty, and that is the duty to take care of the widows so that others can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And from that, we're given a list of seven men. <clears throat> and this is where we're introduced to Stephen. Stephen is the first name mentioned out of this group of seven, and he is described as a man of full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, this description of a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit is not talking about him being a Christian. All of us here, if we call ourselves Christians today, have faith. We have the Holy Spirit. Every believer is a person whose faith or trust is in the, in the saving work of Jesus Christ and has been sealed with the Holy Spirit in them. But this isn't what it's referring to when it's talking about Stephen being full of these things. Rather, what Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to say, or trying to convey, it's, it's saying something about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Stephen, and the way in which Stephen responds. <coughs> when it says that he is full of the Holy Spirit, what it's saying is Stephen is a man where every part of his being, his mind, his attitude, his thoughts and actions are gripped and possessed by the Holy Spirit. His life is full of the Spirit. It, it, it basically takes over every inch of him. And he is fully in tune with God's desire and expectation for him. Now, the other half of this coin is to be full of faith, and this one is probably much easier for us to understand, where it speaks of Stephen responds to being filled with a filled or full of the Holy Spirit, and that he, now he fully trusts in God to do all things through him, and especially all the things that the Holy Spirit is taking hold of him to do. What this is really saying is that when we look at the life of Stephen, Stephen is a life that is looking to fully please the Lord God. His life is an aroma of, of Christ, and you see him, and you can clearly see that Christ is with him and in him. His faith is fully bubbling up as, as who he is and what he is. And he trusts in God so implicitly that it's tangible, that it's real. And now this also manifests now in the way in which it transforms Stephen. So now Stephen is not just a, a, a person within himself, but he's been transformed by the Spirit. And now, as it says in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen is now a man full of grace and power. Now, we spoke earlier about Stephen's life as an example of how we are to stand in our life. <clears throat> and these are some of the ways in which he stands, which is an example for us. Stephen stands on the faith that Christ has won on his behalf. He is a man who is full of grace. He is a demonstration of God's unmerited favor to him. And now that demonstration now takes on physical form in the full power of the miracles and works in which he now does on behalf of God. 
But this impact on Stephen isn't just about the, he looks to please God. The image that he now looks like is actually really different. Now, this is something that is very clear in the text of Luke, that Luke now tries to show you that he tries to please God, but what he looks like now is he looks like Christ. And Luke, as I said, the author, makes this exceedingly clear. When you read through um, chapter 6, verses 8 to 5, you come to this conclusion. There's so many of these parallels between Jesus and Stephen. Consider that Stephen is a person who is full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, full of grace. <clears throat> he is now a one who does wonders and signs. He has this great power. And he possesses this unconquerable wisdom that the Pharisees cannot overcome. And at the end of chapter 6, it says that his face shines or is like an angel. Now, this is an image to, Jewish, to a Jewish audience that shows that he has an angel-like expression of awe as enlightened and brightened appearance. Now, why this matters is that these are all images and ways in which Christ is or was. He's very much like Christ in his act, that he goes around and he, he does the work of God. He does signs and great wonders. He embodies the spirit and the life of God in all that he does. He even has his face shine or to be like an angel. And if you remember, this is actually very much like Jesus in, 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 the, book of, in, the, in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, where in the transfiguration, Jesus' face also shines. But Stephen isn't just like Christ in his actions and appearance. Stephen also goes through the opposition or the oppression that Jesus goes through. In the same way where Christ is, goes before the elders, they, they try to use wisdom against him, and they can't conquer him that way, they take him for the leaders to, to make a defense of his faith. Stephen happens, ha, this all happens the same thing to Stephen. And even, even with Stephen, they trump up char, false witnesses against him because they can't overcome his wisdom. So this is the life of Stephen. A man imminently empowered by the Spirit. He stands on the grace of God. He stands for Christ wherever he goes. He's a man that as he moves, we see Christ. And it's a wonderful image to behold. Now, I bet for many of us here, <coughs> we probably have asked for the same thing, right? We've asked for the Holy Spirit to fill us. We ask for more faith or more grace and more power. But I wonder when we ask, do we want what's happening here to Stephen? <coughs> now, for sure, when we ask about these things, what we're really asking for is, Christ, make us more like you. Christ, let us bear your image in this world in a much greater and much more powerful way. But if we consider that if God were to answer this prayer, it might bring the ire and irritation of those around us who are diametrically opposed to Christ. Now, I'm talking about this because when we, I, I need, I need us to, we, we need to know that as we ask for God for these things, there's often opposition that we might face if we actually receive these things. 
So though we may stand for these things and stand on these things, there very may well be conflict when, it, when, we, when we take these things on. And how do you feel about that? How would you, be, how would you feel to be put into a similar situation to Stephen and Jesus? Would you still make the same prayer? Could you or would you experience the same oppression and persecution for your faith? The Bible is replete with verses about if you were to live this life as a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. Let me just give you a couple. John chapter 15, verse 20. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would also listen to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now, these, these are right things to pray for, that we want to be like Stephen. We want to stand like Stephen. We want to stand for the same things that Stephen stands for. But we also need to understand the reality of what that might mean. And that might mean that we might experience persecution and hardship and difficulty. What are your thoughts about that? How do you feel about that? Are you... Are we? Do we have this worry and fear that we don't want these things because this is to come? <clears throat> how do you think the first generation of Christians who went through this, how do you think that they felt? I would say that the first generation of Christians actually had a much deeper understanding of persecution than we do today. I think for many of us here, and I'm included in this conversation, that when we see difficulty or hardship that comes, the first thing we want to do is run. We want to hide. We don't want to endure this. But as we read through the scriptures of these first generation of Christians, and we read historically what Christians were like, their first inclination was not to run. Their first inclination was to stand for Christ because they realized that this was not just happening by accident. That these things were not incidental to being a Christian, but suffering and persecution was something that we were destined for as Christians. <coughs> Surprised? If you're not convinced, let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 to 4, that no one may be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, just as you know. I want to share with you, with, with, all, with all of you here, one of the greatest mysteries and wonders of the gospel, that as we are called to stand and to be like Christ, to be like Stephen, there is suffering at hand, but this is destined for us to occur. Nothing comes to pass without God knowing or, or even seemingly good, uh, bad, good things or seemingly bad things. Nothing is out of God's hand. Suffering, persecution, oppression, these things are not just, they just don't happen as a byproduct of being a Christian. They are ordained by God. And believe it or not, they're ordained for our good. As Romans 8, 28 says, that, all, that basically all these things are for our good, for those who are called according to his purposes. 
where all things work together for good. And what is the reason for this? Why does God allow us to experience this kind of suffering, this kind of hardship? And I think that it's so that we can rely on him more, rely on his grace more. As 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we talked about this idea that Stephen of what he stood for, what he stands on. And here we're talking about what are some of the outcomes that we might experience if we are to live the life that Stephen lives, if we are to go and and be full of the Spirit, full of holiness, that we are going to experience persecution. And this last part, what I think we need to know is that this persecution is actually good for us because it refines our faith. As the Apostle Paul kind of wrestled with this question about weakness and about these difficulties that he experienced, what he learned was, yes, these things make me weak. But in my weakness, I turn to God all the more. I rest in him. I trust in him. He is what makes me strong. So as we stand for Christ, we should not be unexpected to experience hardship or calamity, but fully know that God has a purpose for these things. God uses these evil things sometimes that humans do to build our faith. These things aren't often, these things are often meant to make us feel weak so we can rely on God's grace, which increases our grace that we receive. It gives us a greater faith. It gives us a greater hope in the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And this is a deep truth that, I, that we can see that Stephen knew that these things were happening. And this is why when the question comes up, are these things so? He doesn't falter in speaking truthfully of what he believes. In the second half of this passage, we see Stephen... <coughs> After contending with Hellenistic Jews, he is now, he's, they, they're, they're upset at him. They, 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 want to, they, want to, they want to persecute him. So they trump up false charges with false witnesses against him. And they, he's taken up by these Jewish leaders to now make a defense of what he believes. And here, as we read Stephen's example here, or Stephen's situation or speech, we now get an example of how we are to stand in our witness. Now, Stephen's answer to the questions of the charges about blasphemy against God, that you speak poorly of the holy place of God, of Moses, he answers, these, he answers all of this in these 53 verses in chapter 7 with three major topics. Number one is he answers the charge of, am I blaspheming against God? And the emphatic answer for Stephen is no. He shows the depth of of what she understands the Old Testament here, and he praises the God of glory throughout this reading or throughout his speech. 
Stephen is not blaspheming against God because he continually shows that he understands what God is doing, God's grace and wonder, that he is worthy of praise, worthy to be worshipped, that God is working in the people, that he has a plan for the people. So no. Stephen says, no, I'm not blaspheming. What the issue is here is the error of your belief. So this is the second point that, that Stephen makes, that Stephen says that you have some errors in your belief, and that's why you think that I'm blaspheming. Now, one pastor theologian notes that here, Stephen contends with three pillars of Judaism and their errors of belief. And those three pillars are the land, the law, and the temple. Now, regarding the land, the Jewish people here, the, these Hellenistic Jews of the free church, of this, this, free, this church of the, of the synagogue of the free men, they believe that being in this land that they occupied gave them special privileges because God had said about what it would be like to take this land. And now being in it, they should receive these benefits. And so their core blindness, their core error belief is they actually had a too high of a view of the land that they venerated the land. As one pastor theologian said, <clears throat> the land, they thought that the land gave them a status and blessing that left little room for a savior. And here, Stephen shows them three examples of why they're wrong. Number one, he quotes Abraham. And he says that God blessed Abraham ever before he even touched down on the land. The second example he gives is of Joseph and the sons of Jacob. That God uses Joseph to bless the people, or God's people, or the children of Jacob, before they had the land, while they were in Egypt. And the only part they had was the tomb where they, which they would die in. The last example, and the most, probably the most powerful one, is the one of Moses. The question is, where did God bless the people of Israel? And we saw much of the blessing that God had given to the people of Israel was before they entered the land. And then Stephen points backward and he says, where do we see where these blessings are had? Specifically, when we look at Moses and he was touches on the whole, this, when he has that communion with God, that also happens outside the land. Therefore, holy ground, what you think of special blessing is not this land. Holy ground is where God meets his people. So this is their first error. Or their second error. Second to the claim is the veneration of the law of Moses, and they believe that by the law they can find redemption and salvation in Moses and in the law. However, Stephen's argument here is that Moses predicts in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15 that there would be a prophet raised from their own, and that prophet is Jesus Christ. And that they venerate Moses in the law, but it doesn't offer them redemption. It doesn't offer them salvation. It's this prophet that will be like Moses who will offer them that. And the Israelites missed it. Their fathers had missed it, and now they miss it. Stephen says this in chapter 39, verse 40, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. 
They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us, and this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. This is the way that the, the, the forefathers of the Israelites dealt or, 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 or dealt with Moses. Even though they followed after him, even though they were, they were his flock, ultimately they abandoned Moses and they turned to other gods. And the people here, these Hellenistic Jews, are doing the same thing with Jesus. Now the third claim he makes is regarding the temple. Now, the error in their belief here is that they believe that the temple was certainly where God would be with them. That because they had the temple, God would be with the people. And also here, Stephen corrects their thinking. And he quotes Isaiah 66, verses 1 to 2, where he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? The false belief here is that because God is not confined to the temple, all of heaven and earth are his, and he will dwell wherever he pleases. And just because God has assigned a place to meet his people does not mean that people receive a blessing. So he answers the question about blaspheming. He deals with the errors of their belief. The very last thing he does here is he exposes their sin. Stephen has argued that the people of Israel over and over again have resisted God. The sons of Jacob rejected Joseph. The people of Israel rejected God and Moses and made idols with their own hands. This is a pattern that even now they still fall into. And Stephen makes one last point of emphasis here in verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There is this great courage in which um, Stephen stands for, has, as he makes this stand. And it's the, this is the first thing that I really want to talk about. That this courage, I, I just want to speak of very quickly, is not a courage that is earthly. This kind of courage is scary, I think. Because the courage that he has here is the courage to stand, is, called, is, a, is, is a call to be crucified, as Russell Moore has argued. In this passage... The price that he pays if he is found to be blaspheming is death. And yet he makes this great stand here knowing that if he can't make the stand, he's going to die. This is a courage that he has, but it's, it's a courage that's unlike anything else in this world. In an earthly courage, oftentimes your hope comes from your nerve. You're only as courageous as you have wit or nerve or ability. What is amazing about the courage of Stephen is it's not that he has no fear any longer or that he has great nerve. It's that he knows that, as we've said, in his weakness, he is fully reliant on God. He is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. It is an unworldly courage that he has here, not because of his humanness, 
but because of the way that God has worked in him. Now, the second thing I want to say about this is that what Stephen does here is he confronts the Israelites about what they stand on. They, they venerated the law. They venerated the land. They venerated the temple. These were these false beliefs of things that these Israelites stood on. And like I said, everybody has things that they're willing to be confronted over. And that's exactly what these Hellenistic Jews do. They could not hear and listen to Stephen because he was wrong. They confronted him about it. And here Stephen pushes back. He says, no, 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 no. You guys missed the boat. You guys missed the main point. That is not about the land. And it's not about the law. It's not about the temple. It's what they pointed to that matters. And that's Jesus Christ. I think it's very easy to hear these words and be like, that's great. Easy. I'm a Christian. I don't care about the law. I don't care about the land. I don't go to a temple. These things have nothing to do with me. But to think that way would be to miss the thing that is so clear here, that we have to be absolutely worried if we stand on anything else except Christ. The way that Stephen stood in this witness is one in which he told the truth and he, and he, and he isolated the specific issues that they had about what they stood for and how they did not align themselves with God. But the key question for us, not just in the way that he preached or witnessed here, is that are there such things in our lives that we stand for that also need to be corrected? Are there foundations in our lives that also need the same correction? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, or hay, or, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. You know, I earlier asked you, what do you stand on? What are things that are critical to who you are, what you believe, what you hold to? And is there an actual foundation there that is Christ alone on that solid rock you stand? Or do you, do you stand, on, as the song goes, on sinking sand? What is the thing in which you stand for? And are there things that you think are of highest importance in this Christian faith? I think we, we live in a world today where just the common belief that we all are in Christ is not enough for unity. In fact, we have unity on these things that we've, we've now made other things kind of the entry point for being united in Christ. And so therefore we're saying that without these foundations, we actually can't have any unity any longer. But isn't that dangerous? Isn't there a danger there that now says that these are now new foundations for me? These are things that I now stand on. These are things that now shape my life, maybe more than Christ, more important than Christ, how I think that I relate to Christ. 
These are things that we really need to take deeply and to really think about. Now, after Stephen makes this claim, we would expect that he would have a presentation of the gospel at the end. But notice that in this chapter, there actually is no calling to repent and believe. And you might wonder why. And I think many theologians have it right where they, they, can, they, they believe that the reason why Stephen was unable to make a call here is probably because the crowd reacted before he could make that plea. So before he could be finish his speech, the crowd had done this, as it says in verse 40, uh, 54 and 57. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But they, crowd with a loud they cried with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now the very last point that I'm going to ma make today is to look at how Stephen stands in death. Because in this we can see what the cost and the value is of being in Christ. And what it costs, as it makes very clear in this passage, is your life. Now for Stephen, he, made these, he said these things and people were so angry at him that they took him out of the city and they stoned him to death. So it literally cost him his life to say what he said. Now, for you and me here, we sit on these pews and we might be asking ourselves, I'm probably not going to die if I'm sharing the gospel. Very unlikely. And you're probably right. That maybe you and I here are not going to die from sharing the gospel here in the country, uh, here in Canada. But I do want to say that the same thing that it costs him, which is his life, is the same thing that costs us. Not, just, not, not in terms of just giving it up, but all of your life is God's. As it says in Luke chapter 14, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's also another story in the Gospels where there is a, a rich young ruler, and I, personally speaking, I think that most people misunderstand the story. They think that this rich young ruler comes to Jesus because he wants affirmation from Jesus. Hey, I'm a great guy. And he doesn't, he basically thinks that Jesus is going to affirm him, that he doesn't really have, he does, he, and he just doesn't believe that, you know, he's actually done anything wrong. But I actually see something different in, this, in that story. In the story of the rich young ruler, I see a man who comes to Jesus because he sees that Jesus is different, that he wants something more. He can understand that the things that he's doing do not elicit eternal life. Because he comes to them, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, the first thing that Jesus says is he starts with the law, and he says, you, have, you must do these things and these things, and the rich young ruler says, I've done those things. But it's the last thing that he can't do. And Jesus says, okay, give up all your, all your possessions to the poor, and now follow me. And the rich young ruler was unable to do this because he saw his great wealth, and he could not do it. The cost of the, of the gospel is not just that you can do these good things. The cost of the gospel is your very life. Everything that you own, everything that you are, you are now his. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So though it actually physically costs Stephen his life, for us to call ourselves Christians, it costs us our life to be his, to be in Christ. That there is no separation here. That we are called to be Christ, to give up our life, to give up our human ambitions and our human hopes and all human faculties freely to Christ. And to live for his purpose, live for his goals, live for him. This is the cost. But what's the value? We find the value of why Stephen would do that. Why why Stephen was willing to give up his life here at the end. Verse 55, but he said, For the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen sees the prize that he has been awaiting for his entire life. A Christ who is normally seated on the throne now stands and waits for him to return home. And in death, Stephen now stands with Christ. He has received the prize of what he has always hoped for. The prize which he so desires is now his. What is the example here of how we are to stand in death? It's the example that it will cost us our life to follow after Christ. But in costing us our life, we get the the greatest treasure of our souls the pearl of great price that we're willing to give up everything for. That Paul could say that, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. So as we look to stand, what we stand for, what stands in death, what is there for us in death, we see the cost of what it costs us. But we also see the value of what we're, what we're looking for there. You know, I haven't met very many people who've given up their lives for their faith. But I do know a number of Christians who it cost them everything to live as Christians. I've shared this story in the past of a past acquaintance who came from a Muslim family. And when he told them, and he had wrestled with this for months and even years over telling his family that he was going to be a Christian. And he finally did. He finally worked up enough of of this strength to be able to do it. And he went to his parents and told them, I don't believe in what you believe in. I trust in Christ. I'm a Christian. His family came back to him with a solemn face and basically said to him, if you do this, it will cost you everything. You're no longer part of this family. We will disown you. And any kind of monetary security that you ever enjoyed, you no longer have. And he ended up giving it all away. Not because he didn't know about the value of what his family was offering him, but because he saw Christ as a much greater treasure than all these other things. Now you and I may not have the same experiences, but we're very much likely to lose people in our lives because we we stand with Christ. We may lose friends, we may lose 
close colleagues, maybe some relatives, all because we have chosen Christ. But as you count the cost, is it worth it? And as Christians, we believe it is worth it. It's worth it not because people are important, not because we, we're, we're, we're numb to these feelings of, with other people, because Christ is all that we long for, all that we hope for. He gives us everything that we have been awaiting for. He satisfies every longing, every great, our greatest needs. He cleans us before God. He calms our quiet hearts and gives us the only hope that we have to the future. This is what it means to stand in death. Maybe one last thing here is one of the things that we've been talking about, and especially this has actually become a recent thing, is this idea of being on the right side of history. You know, many people have said they, they do these things, they've, they've made these, they these acts, and the thing that they say at the end is, I will be proclaimed or shown right at the end of history. What I've done will be shown that I did the right thing. But that's exactly what we have here. We can live these lives, stand this way, base our lives on Christ, because we know that Christ is at the end of history awaiting us and that we will be with him forever. So that should give us great hope in the way that we stand for and stand for him and stand on him as we live. Here's my conclusion. What do you stand for now? What will you stand for? Is your life, much like Stephen's, a life that is fully planted on Christ? Where he stands for Christ in his life, stands for, life in his, stands for Christ in his witness, and sees Christ as his greatest treasure. He stands for him and stands with him in death. Is that you and me? Is Stephen's example one in which we want to emulate or one in which we want to flee because it's not the life we want to live? Because remember, what you stand for matters. You put your life on it, you base your life on it, you trust in it. This is everything. Is this what we stand for here, at, here, to, here this morning? Let's pray.